Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right. So today we have a special guest on the pod, uh, Robert Shea, who's currently a principal at Grand Thornton, but prior to that spent many years uh, in government on both the Hill and the executive branch. I met Robert in 2002, I think, or three, right around then, um, when we both converged and found ourselves at the Office of Management and Budget. And um, one thing about Robert, like every every so often someone asks me, who's the best director you ever worked with at OMB, or who's the best this or that? The the award that I will bestow to Robert, not to put any pressure on you, but best one-liners of any policy official. Well, you, you messed Did, it up from now on. There's nothing like saying to someone, hey, be funny. Yeah, right? exactly. Them, no, but you know, I was really enjoyed working with Robert. So, Robert, welcome to, to Gov Actually. Thanks very much. I appreciate your setting the bar high. Billy, <laughs> a little uncomfortable. I wanted to leave the room while they were talking, but <laughs> hopefully it'll settle down and yeah, we'll get a little yeah. normal and professional. Yes, the love fest is over. Let's, let's start right. in. So, so let me ask the first question, Robert, and I want to focus on um, some perspectives on OMB, which, uh, which I think would be an interesting place to take the conversation. One of the first things that happens when a new, administra- a, new, a new administration takes over is things have to get lit up at OMB, and, and the work begins to, uh, to get a new budget out, to get things going, first 100 days. Any perspectives from, uh, from your experience? I mean, the good news is... The planning for this transition has been going on a lot longer than in the past. So uh, both both campaigns before the election were preparing to assume governing. Uh, and at OMB, they were doing the same thing. There were folks who were leading the preparation for that. You know, one of the things that I think will surprise people, one of the very first actions that a government takes when a new president is inaugurated, very brief memo, goes out to every single agency, says whatever you do, basically if you buy a pencil, that needs to come through OMB. People don't understand the scope of OMB's responsibility. Every speech, every bill, um, every budget, uh, every management initiative, all of that is managed centrally through OMB. So you basically have to get OMB's blessing before that happens. I'm not sure anybody knows that the, that's the way things work until right. they join the with, executive branch. With all these new people coming in, particularly all these people, you know, we were talking a little bit beforehand, there, there is a, the, the number of people joining the administration without prior government experience is probably on the higher end. Um, and, you know, at, once they're done appointing, it probably be the highest ever. Um, yeah, I, how long before they figure out that that is the, the, the most substantial guardrail that they have that as they drive down their particular kind of policy highway? All that stuff has to be circulated through OMB and then the interagency. So it's got to be circulated for comment to all the agencies. You, your question was specifically, I think, about the budget. Um, 
still wrapping up 17, uh, got to propose 18, and then work on 19 at the same time. We're it's, under a CR right now. We're right? under a CR. Not only that, but the, the Congress is considering reconciliation right. to withdraw the Affordable Care Act. When do we hit the debt limit again? Yeah, it's coming up. It's coming up. Yeah, and it'll be in. interesting the amount of spending that's being suggested, not only Affordable Care Act, but also tax reform, infrastructure. The wall. De- uh, defense. Yeah. Major spending. Not a lot of people talking about austerity right. and where that comes from. I want to hit on something, Robert, that you said, and I take the conversation in a particular direction. I remember... Um, Secretary Tommy Thompson from HHS during the Bush administration, his exit interview um, that he gave with the press as he was leaving his post, he had a fair amount to say about the Office of Management and Budget. And All good, right? No. Oh. Um, so he, I think ultimately, if I remember correctly, I mean, he certainly had a, a respect for the organization and for the you know, the intellect of the people that work there and, and, and their drive and their purpose and, and their service, their government service. All that said, though, the emphasis of his quotes about OMB were really about the, the power play that OMB plays with the agencies and how that gatekeeping function can be extremely, extremely frustrating and that you take a position as secretary of an organization like HHS and you think that you're going to have a certain amount of autonomy to drive the organization in the direction you want to go and then you wake up on that first morning and you realize that there's this thing called OMB and there's a bunch of um, analysts there that are going to tell you how to do your, your business, and he expressed some frustration. So my question, Robert, from your perspective is, is, you know, is there value um, in the amount of oversight that the Office of Management and Budget does to the other executive branch agencies and their actions? Is it, at the, is it calibrated at the right way? Is it too little? Is it too much? The, I had exactly the same conversation with Mike Levitt, another former HHS yeah. secretary, when I was working on the Romney transition. And we were briefing him on what the OMB transition would look like. And he's like, yeah, I'd like to give this a lot more thought because I remember vividly coming in as HHS secretary and some 17-year-old kid came in and told me how to run my department. 25-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The... Um, if he looked like Danny, he thought he was 17. Yeah, I had that reputation. That's why I got a beard, actually, I, when I, I was an OMB. But people don't right? tell me that anymore. <laughs> like, I used like yeah, there was some point, like, when I first started at OMB, I think I was 26 years old. And then straight through, like, to age 35, I was still getting the comment, like, you know, I was running this program when you were in diapers type thing and um, maybe you should have gone by Daniel rather than Daniel. I don't know but then it stopped I started to get a little gray on the edges and then that, that's a little depressing so irrespective of the youth yes the scale of the government is larger than anybody could possibly imagine but the very unique mission of OMB is to ensure that the program of the president is being implemented with fidelity and so uh that's OMB is uniquely positioned to do that, and um, it's not going to. Every agency and OMB relationship isn't going to be perfect, because it's a pretty heady set of responsibilities that an individual gets when they assume a role at OMB like that. So it ought to be 
Um, we, ought, we ought to pay attention to how well that's working across the board. You know, I, I could tell you those branches at OMB that I think have a particularly large chip on their shoulder versus some others who I think have a much more collaborative relationship um, with the agencies. I also think if the if the change in administration causes whiplash in the policies that are being implemented by that agency, that also adds friction that I think you need to pay attention to. So is it calibrated correctly? No. Can it be calibrated perfectly? No. Is there a better solution? I haven't seen one. If you let uh, freedom reign across the uh, executive branch, I think you're talking about the Wild West and pretty much chaos, and there'll be conflict with the administration, uh, often and, and often severe conflict. And I, I think the, the debate comes down to who best represents the position of the administration. And you know, while I think uh, secretaries feel that they've been chosen by the administration, confirmed by the Senate to have this responsibility, at the at the end of the day, there's there's there isn't always kind of pure uniformity about what the right direction is, and so you have OMB trying to argue the the position or at least their perceived position of the president, and then you have the secretary arguing the position or at least their perceived position of the president, and that's where you you run into these issues. I'd, I'd be curious to hear how Secretary Burwell thinks about the relationship with OMB, having been the former OMB <laughs> director and now being the secretary yeah. of HHS. Well, one of the things, as Robert was talking, and that's a perfect question, Dan, was my, my reflection that you know, I, I was at OMB through multiple administrations, and I ne never noticed a change in the level of OMB oversight or engagement even as, as Robert mentioned, different branches within OMB have different levels of scrutiny they place on their on the organization, on the on the relevant agency that they oversee versus others. It didn't matter whether it was Republican or Democrat administration. That maintained a certain degree of continuity. So it's not the party affiliation that, that drives that. I think it's 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 a little bit the real estate in terms of where OMB sits. Um, well, there are also some some two two major things. One is the implicit threat that your budget will be impacted by noncompliance with an OMB uh, instruction or uh, driving the president's mission. But you also have an appeals process, right? You've got someone low down at OMB, a program examiner who makes a decision. An agency can go through the chain of command all the way up and and to the president to get that decision overruled. But you only have so much political capital to expend, so you're not going to do that on every decision. And the agencies have to really understand where that line is so that they can use that process to their advantage. Yeah, but one of the issues, why is OMB so quote-unquote powerful? Why, do they why, why did Secretary Tommy Thompson at that point in time have that level of frustration? It's, it's interesting, I woke up this morning and I turned the, the news on and there was a whole story about the possibility that the Trump administration is gonna move the White House press 
pool from the West Wing to the Eisenhower Executive Office building, and what are the implications of that, both substantively and symbolically? The reality is, and without weighing in on that question, that the fact that it, that campus, the White House campus that houses the Eisenhower Executive Office Building and the new Executive Office Building, that, where OMB staff is, that proximity I think ends up being very powerful for OMB, especially early on in administration, because you arrive uh, as a new administration and you need people that understand how to do things, you need people that have the answers, you need people with that institutional knowledge, and. HHS is a couple of miles away, and OMB is right across the street. And people, they're, they're in your email system, it's easy to find them, they're in your phone directory, they can run over and be in your office in a matter of, of, of minutes. And they're wise and savvy and experienced in the way this stuff works. Paul Begala once famously said to director uh, Leon Panetta, you've got pro propeller heads stacked up like cordwood over there at OMB, <laughs> you know, help us figure this problem out. Yeah. yeah, and and they're the, and they're and and when you start day one, day two, day seven, day ten of an administration, and you start to get that comfort level with OMB in terms of giving you that good input and helping you solve problems, that builds over time in each administration, and 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 rightfully so, those administrations lean on OMB going forward. You know, we're talking about OMB like everybody understands its makeup. Its core function is producing and implementing the president's budget, uh, but it's also got, uh, it's managing the government's finances, it's managing the procurement policies, the way agencies, the way agencies buy stuff. It's overseeing the way it buys and implements information technology, uh, the way it issues regulations, uh, its personnel policies. It's got deep benches of expertise in all of those areas, and there's no other entity in the world like it. And you I know, think most central uh, government agencies don't have that combination of deep expertise across all those domains. I think uh, the, the regulation one is, is one that's worth you know, um, diving a little deeper into uh, either in this discussion or you know, we could do a whole other one <laughs> on that. But, um, that seems to be, you know, a position where if this administration is very much focused on this idea of um, kind of changing the relationship of the executive to Congress, that regulatory area of OMB could be a very, very powerful tool for helping do that or, or getting in the way of it. Well, yeah. I, I mean, it's always difficult to describe. I think, Robert, pausing and, and making sure people have a, a good appreciation of of the Office of Management and Budget, its role, its scope is what it does, is a good it's a good thing for us to remember to do because it's very enigmatic it's mm -hmm. in terms of an organization and and even people in and around government, even people in the executive office of the president who don't work in OMB can find themselves scratching their heads and I had of, I had a visit from my uncle and uh, I was giving him a tour, introducing to some of my colleagues. We were in the legislative affairs office and he stood up and after seeing that I had a good friendly relationship. He said, I'll give anybody in here $100. They can tell me in 30 words or less what it is OBM does. <laughs> it's just, he couldn't, he couldn't understand at all what I did for a living. That's yeah. fascinating. So uh, I actually think what's interesting is how quickly an administration arrives at the conclusion 
that they have this very, very powerful multi-tool in their hand. There have got to be hundreds of people telling the new administration, the new director of OMB, the new president and his team, that the most important thing you need to do is make sure you have a high-functioning OMB, not least of which is because you're going to need money to do the things you want to do, but also all the other levers it's got to help you do that. Plus setting the tone that that director is going to be a... um, I don't want to say first among equals, but a very, very important part of that cabinet and that they got to listen to them. I think that the the Bush administration very early set a tone within the administration that OMB was going to be uh, blown off at at very high risk. And I can remember a particular sub-agency head who was uh, asked to resign asked to leave after ignoring the OMB regulatory, the uh, the congressional clearance process. It was very early in the... Very early. I think it was like, must have been 2001 yeah. when that happened. And set a heck of a bar for what yeah. the expectation was. And maybe that was part of what Secretary Thompson was you know, expressing his, you know, chafing up against was that there really was, in that administration in particular, this argument that, no, we're not, we're not going to play with the role of OMB in this administration. Let me point out, I think, a a potential risk with the incoming administration and OMB. Um, So we've mentioned on the podcast before, and I think earlier, like this is different, this this transition is different from from a variety of different standpoints. Every transition is different. But one one of the big differences about this one is potentially the the proportion of people without um, prior government experience may be higher. One of the things that OMB is required to do early on in an administration is explain kind of the landscape of what you can and can't do um, based on existing law, existing regulation, um, you know, from a practical standpoint, the, the institution, the people who have been at OMB for a long time have seen all the various um, successes and failures and understand that that regulatory and legal landscape and so when a when a transition team comes in and they say well i want to do x y or z there's someone sitting across from them from omb who has the 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 somber duty of saying well some of what you're asking to do it can't be done or it shouldn't be done and the concern that i have is if you have a bunch of people that have never been in government before they immediately see omb as obstacle rather than as as, as the type of organization that can remove that can also remove those obstacles. My experience was that in in the transitions that I was involved in while sitting at OMB, it was we did have to spend time explaining the do's, the don'ts, the can'ts, the cans. But then we very quickly were able to pivot to, okay, now that we've laid that out, let's figure out the critical path and the roadmap. And I'm a little bit worried that there'll be a, a dose of, no, that won't work from the OMB team, and that the Trump team might get some frustration there because they haven't been through this before with the government. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about yeah, that. Yeah, no, and then just dismiss it out of hand. It's an interesting... It is. I think it's both a risk and an opportunity. There's, there's a, a, a threat, you know, there's a tendency at OMB to say, we've tried that before and it can't be done. Um, there's a real opportunity in this new administration to look at things differently and ask why not. Um, It'll be up to Mick Mulvaney to drive that organization in such a way that respects the expertise you're talking about, but also trying to manage the expectations of the new folks 
Trump and his people who really want to break some China about why why OMB ought to be respected and listened to and leveraged so that they can figure out new and different ways of getting done what they want to get done. All right. I, I think uh, that's a great spot for us to um, take a break for a minute. When we come back, I'd like to do this idea, a thought exercise, and say, okay, Robert, let's say you were the director or you're a very, very close advisor to the director of OMB. You have this moment to kind of set it up, um, set the tone, really start the administration. What are, what are some of your ideas for doing that? GovActually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. So we're back, um, and and I think we left with a with a good question for Robert about you know how he, how he would advise an incoming director in this in this situation. I mean, the way I want to kind of think about the question is we we talked in the first segment about two different types of ways to calibrate OMB more effectively. One was can we can we rethink how they oversee federal agencies so we're, we're striking the right balance of, of value, autonomy, flexibility, et cetera? And then, and then we also had another type of calibration discussion um, that was in and around like how creative can we enable the OMB staff and the apparatus to be in getting out of, you know, kind of this is the traditional way it's been done, and can we kind of open the door to uh, to a lot of changes and maybe innovations? And so, so Robert, as you're sitting down hypothetically with the new OMB leadership team, how should they attack the problem and think through, or or not the problem? How should they approach the opportunity to uh, to position OMB to to help the Trump administration be successful? You, you, I came from the management side. You began in the man. You began on the budget side, and then went to the management side. There's this bizarre division between the management side and the budget side. So you've got people overseeing the agencies, developing their budgets, but also with some responsibility for overseeing their execution. Then you've got these management entity, entities, Office of Federal uh, Procurement Policy, Office of Federal Financial Management, Performance and Personnel. EGov, um, those entities uh, have great resources that could be better used on the budget side if they were better integrated. Right now, it appears that there's a lot of churning of general guidance about how to improve management, but not a lot of advice on the operational side. I think you've really got to solve this issue of division between management and budget and better integrate them. You know, we had this, when we worked together, Danny, uh, the scorecard process. We met every quarter at, at a minimum uh, with the budget side to oversee how the management improvement efforts of that particular agency were going and what cor course corrections we needed to make. I think that's the, that division has worsened in the last couple of years. Uh, a lot of instructions to agencies have gone out seemingly in isolation from a more integrated operation. And so I would say 
as nebulous as that sounds, better integration of the M and B should be a big priority. Because that's, you've got limited resources over there. I've heard OMB described as the reverse Wells Fargo wagon. That is, the more you put on it, the faster it goes. Um, that can't be true. There's a breaking point. Uh, OMB's got a lot more resources than it's had in the past, but it still has an enormous, enormous responsibilities. So we need to maximize those resources, and I think integration is a way to do that. Well, let me let me let me ask you about the scorecard question because I'll I'll share with you my historical reflection. I don't know that it's correct or not, but I, I thought the scorecard process, from my vantage point when I was there and we worked on it together, worked very well for for a lot of the reasons you described. It 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 was a forcing function that brought the M and B side together very systematically around a set of. Of, of specific aspirations and expectations on the agencies, and then added to that a very kind of clear demarcation of success or failure that not only could be transparent to the agency involved and to all the people at OMB, but transparent to the public as well. So that's how I would sum up the positives. The negatives, and I think the way the Obama administration was advised coming in of some of the concerns about the scorecard, was over time there was a sense that people were, were, were studying to the test, but not learning the material. So you could get to green, but has your underlying operation really improved in terms of citizen services and mission impact? And so I think what the Obama administration did, they said, well, we don't want the organization studying to the test. We want real impact. And there was a concern that the scorecard would create just kind of a, a, a strive for the A or the green or the, or the high score and forget the bottom line. And what's the middle ground there? Assuming you agree with my you know, kind of um, sweeping generalization about how this played out, is there a middle ground there? You know, I, I totally agree that over time, agencies understood what they needed to demonstrate to get to green. And so they were not genuinely improving to the extent we would have hoped. I remember an ad uh, actually in the Federal Triangle Metro Station that said, and it was from one of the big, you know, it wasn't integrators. Wasn't not, not Grant Thornton. No, it wasn't, wasn't oh, any of yours. Not the Boston Consulting uh, Group. Okay, just making oh sure. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I hope you guys both get promoted for saying that. Uh, but uh, that said, we will get you to green. And I remember thinking to myself, wow this is the day the part has jumped, jumped the shark, right? Because <laughs> what, what they're saying is it's like it doesn't matter what the outcome is other than getting to green, and that's, that's the danger with any one of those exercises. That's right. I mean, the criteria have to be crafted pretty well, and its implementation needs to be pretty rigorous. However you devise those things, the device drives behavior, um, and it also gives you a way to be transparent and to judge performance. Um, I think the, you know, uh, for, for my money, I think the device drove better integration and attention to these issues that's worth the cost of dilution over time. So you need to make sure that you're regularly updating it, providing sufficient oversight to ensure right. that people are uh, administering it at, with some fidelity to what you're trying to accomplish. I think that's right. I think in retrospect, if you, if you had a chance to go back in the way back machine eight years, might have argued to keep the part 
but focus on the problems with the part rather than just saying, okay, we're going to abandon that yeah. and we'll come up with something well, that never actually ever be, that came up with. Remember, there was the high priority goals. The problem was that they were they were established at the agency level, and agencies saw nothing but risk around enunciating clearly what those high priority goals were. And so the high priority goals never looked like they were particularly high priority. It's a major threat. I mean, you're, you're, it's, it takes courage to sign up mm-hmm. for transparent reporting of ambitious goals. Right. So you, you need a particularly um, uh, ambitious and courageous leader to drive that. So I, I don't, Rob, I'm going to tell a story. I don't know if you remember this, but you were, you were a player in this story. So it was early in the days of President Bush's management agenda. People were just kind of getting their sea legs under them in terms of what it meant to, to be green, yellow, or red. Um, and most agencies were red to start. Um, and I went over in one of the very early scorecard meetings to the agency that I had responsibility for and sat down with the scorecard. They were red on every parameter. Um, and I started explaining the basis for the red score, uh, uh, you know, in, in earnest. And the individual sitting across the table from me from the agency stopped me, said, I have to stop you. And he said, because if you keep going, I'm going to wring your neck, is what he said. <laughs> now, wow. it was either my uh, annoying personality and uh, presentation style. I'm going to put some, uh, some of it on that. But as it turned out, it was more just he, he was appalled that, that we were scoring them red. Um, and he was very angry about it. And I was a little shaken by it. And I remember we came back and met with Robert to tell him this story. And you had us go, you said, oh, this is, this is a good story. We have to go tell it to Mark Everson, who at the time was the deputy director for management. So we go over to Everson's office. And you're like, Danny, tell him the story. So I told him this guy, I told him he was red and he threatened to, to wring my neck. And Everson just, he was thrilled. He just said, this is fantastic. And I'm thinking, <laughs> why? He's like, they're ready to kill each other to get to green. You know, it's like they're really taking this seriously. And for me, it was kind of like, yeah, that was kind of an eye opener. Like, I was still a little bit worried about going back to this agency by myself. Um, but at the same point... Without Secret Service protection. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they, but, they, may, they may be talking trash about you. At least they're talking about you. Right. right? Well, but the, the point is, is that I never witnessed anything as powerful as that in my years in the Obama administration in terms of the impact. And at the time, like, this is 2000 and two or three, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a relatively still a young junior analyst. I think I was a GS 13 or 14 at the time, but suddenly have this power to designate a senior official's work as either failing or passing or passing with distinction, essentially. It's extremely powerful, but it goes back to that question we raised earlier. Is that the right power to give to a junior OMB analyst over an incoming po- uh, policy official. Well, I don't think the junior po- analyst was doing it alone. That's true. There was a, a management infrastructure that helped design the criteria in collaboration with the agencies. Uh, the, remember, the whole team got together every quarter to judge the evidence agencies were providing and how we were grading them. Um, and then, of course, they had the, the right to complain or appeal to higher-ups. Uh, 
Right, but, but, in that, but, in but that, it does yeah. underscore the need to get it right because mm-hmm. this is a powerful tool that drives behavior. And if you have criteria designed incorrectly, then you produce an end that not, may not necessarily be what you want. But I, I, think, no, I think Robert raised a really interesting point, which is by creating an environment where this discussion is being had, right? Even if it's we completely disagree with all your assumptions, then you've created an intellectual framework to work back against those assumptions. So our last guest was, um, was Beth Cobert. We were talking a little bit about when she was DDM and we launched an effort to do some administrative benchmarking work. Yeah. And people argued vociferously around the definition of uh, what acquisition time was. And there are people saying, look, because we'll never get these definitions right, we should just bag this effort. And you know, luckily she said, no, let's get it you know, precisely wrong and let's continue to refine the question around the definition. I, I think that that is a really meaningful management play. I agree, but I want to go. I want to push back because on the dynamic of 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 it, it really doesn't work out that it's the. It wasn't Mark Everson going over to this policy official and telling them you're red or you've failed for this quarter. It, it, it ends up being the 28 year old examiner. Just it's a numbers game. It's the 28 year old sure. examiner that go. And even though behind them was this decision making process, the reality is it does create this tension and it was there for both the scorecard so if you're rating someone on how they're doing on human capital or e-government and you mentioned the part which is the program assessment rating tool where we graded the 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 health and strength of every federal program which is a very powerful tool and powerful exercise but I remember in a separate meeting we had failed one of the programs uh, under the part and the assistant secretary was absolutely sure. livid and I would have been nuts if I'd if I'd been an assistant secretary who failed yeah and so death. and so what I'm pointing out is this tension right there's this tension of the 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 impact that you can have in kind of driving reform and driving behavior because everyone's taking the grade seriously because what gets measured gets done but at the same time is there a way to involve the agency in that grading process so that it's a little bit more collaborative than it was while still having the fidelity of being the right grade. Yeah, I do think collaboration is important. You need to have a really good relationship. I think all in all, the culture of OMB is one of that collaboration with the agencies, and it's incumbent on the director to instill in his leadership the importance of that collaboration as as well as backing up the team. You know, the, the extent to which he stands up for decisions made by the branches and the examiners will go a long way to the strengthening of OMB's role that you so, talked about. So you, but look, okay, the, the, for all the good the government does, most of its programs don't work. And the management challenges we face are epic. Financial management challenges, the waste in IT that goes on, the level of engagement of employees, the time it takes to hire, our ability to retain people, it is not healthy. And so you need a strong institution like OMB. Was it going to be OPM? Is it going to be GSA that does these things? You need a strong central entity tied to the president and the authority he has to drive improvements in these areas. So I was going to, I, I want to make sure I understood you correctly. You, you, 
you said that that it is a culture of collaboration or not. It is. I think okay. the all in all, the culture and the response, the, the people feel a responsibility to engage professionally with their client agencies. It's not always the case. It's heady responsibility people give, and they can abuse it. So. So I think when it works well, it is that. And when it's at its peak, it is that. Um, but like anything, it's, it's kind of a, it's like a state of nirvana, which you're always pursuing but never quite attaining. And I think part of the problem, part of the reason... And the, rela- the, 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 the personalities are constantly churning, right. right? Exactly right. And the other, or they're not. And in some of the cases <laughs> where it's the most broken, the That's personalities right. have not That's changed, very good right? Point. And, very good and point. there's, no, you know, you've yeah. got a shift in administration. Oh, God, thank God we're going to have a, a, a change in the pursuit. And it's the exact same thing under, you know, from one to the next. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I think has crept into the relationship over the, um, I don't know, 40 some, 50 year existence of OMB as the OMB within EXOP, within the executive office of the president. Um, is this kind of this gap between OMB's perception of the quality of the thinking um, in the agencies and the agency's view that they can never be right in the eyes of OMB. And I think about it when I was the Federal Maritime Commission Budget Examiner, and we had a whole effort around performance management coming out of GIPRO. And so we went to try to set some overall program goals for Federal Maritime Commission. They ran a program called the Title 11 Loan Guarantee Program, which provided loans to ship uh, building companies to build ships to keep them competitive in the global marketplace. One of the questions I had was, well, shouldn't, if the program was as effective as it could possibly be, wouldn't the shipbuilding industry get so strong that we would no longer need to subsidize loans to the industry? And I said that, and the head of the Federal Maritime Commission slammed his hand down. He said, I knew OMB was trying to put us out of business. And that, that pretty much described the entire nature of the yeah. assumed relationship. Yeah. I, you know, that, when did that happen? That probably happened in the 90s, right? Okay. Okay, sorry. Well, you know, I raised the, the time frame because I, I think, and I was really glad that Robert concluded that, that the culture leans more collaborative than not. My, my historical reflection, when I arrived at OMB in the, in the mid to late 90s, I really feel like there was a sea change underway. And there was the, you know, kind of the old, the, the older guard from the Reagan years, where, um, where OMB had a kind of a much more um, combative relationship with the agencies. And that was culturally the direction that OMB wanted to go. And, you know, there, there was a, a little mantra that I learned very early in my time at OMB, like, if your agency's not mad at you, and if the agency of oversight is not mad at you, then, then you're not doing your job, you know? And that was, but, but at the same time, I was starting to hear a different vantage point that was coming. So that was coming in my left ear, and coming in my right ear was a different vantage point that the real way to get the agency that you're overseeing to, 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 to agree, to move forward, to do the president's priorities the way we think they should be done is, is to befriend them, is to collaborate with them, is to come at it from the vantage point of partner, not confrontation. It's just like life, right? I mean, the, the lessons in life are just the same as yeah. OMB. The, the, you know, catch more flies with honey. 
Yeah, and I feel like, and and that's and that's and and it just so happens that that I was becoming an, an SES right as I was meeting yeah, Robert, I, I, and I, we I, had that, and I think that's part of the I, attitude that I, was going I, on at the I time. I just want to have to say, as a person who spent the last six years of my of my federal service in agencies, I don't want you to walk away with this illusion that the whole world has changed and everyone really loves OMB right now. No, no, I no. Think no, if no, you were no, to go I'm out saying it's an and evolution. interview your average person on the street in the federal bureaucracy who has some impression of OMB, so that's not your average person on the street, but maybe in Washington it is. I don't know if that perception has changed all that dramatically. And the point of my story wasn't that OMB was not being collaborative with the agency, but the agency was making a vast assumption that the that OMB wasn't collaborative. Right. Well, I mean, in the point that the story you described is a real dichotomy in how people perceive the purpose of a program. Right. Is it to persist? Right. Forever? Right. Or is there a point at which you can actually claim success and wrap up your affairs? I mean, you could argue that it's a terrible day if every ship that's being built in this country has to have a Title 11 loan guarantee behind it. Right? Yeah. That means there's no private market. There's no competitive ability to build this. And so I think to Robert's point, it's like, what are we trying to accomplish with these programs? And I think, you know, an incoming OMB director has a chance to really harness the O, the M and the B to ask these big questions about what are we trying to accomplish with these agencies. I don't want to pivot too hard if Please. you're not ready to go there, but yeah. one thing we have not talked about is OMB's relationship with Congress. Um, OMB could do a much better job getting on the same page as authorizing and appropriators in how they want the agencies to run. I think there's a lot of symbi symbiosis there, but the um, relationship with Congress generally runs through ledge affairs or most certainly with the politicals and is not broadly shared with the career employees. I think if you did that, OMB could be much more successful because I, yeah. agencies making in-runs to Congress to get around OMB is a very common Yeah, I have, I have a thought about that, and I completely agree. And I think about it as a spectrum, and at one end of the spectrum, you have this very rigid requirement that any communication that OMB does with Congress has to go through a single point, which might be the head of OMB Ledge Affairs. Not the highest talent pool in OMB, generally. I well, I disagree with that, but let's let's save that for another oh, day. This is good. You, yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah, create no, the I, kind I of controversy I that we're unwilling to. At the other end of the spectrum, yeah, like Robert it, just cut down his holiday card list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, there are. That's right. There are the people in, in 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 ledge affairs that I know that are super talented. But anyway, let, let's on the other end of the spectrum is the. Um, is is much more like that every member of the OMB team from GS9 up to a pol political official is empowered to connect with, build a relationship with, and have um, iterative communication with their counterpart on the Hill who is involved in the same program area as that person. And I don't know that I've ever achieved this latter end of the spectrum, but I've there've been moments in my career at OMB where we were closer to that than everything going through a single point of contact. And I agree with Robert, um, that works much better. Well, I think the the president and OMB would be better served if this army of experts could engage more directly with the people who are determining the fate of the agencies and the programs. Do you do you think the um, the almost complete abandonment of the appropriations process is part of this problem? 
I mean, because when I started in the in the budget review division, we had this regime around statements of administration policy and letters, and we would argue whether we were strongly opposed or or opposed, or whether we'd do something. You know, the veto threat. You strenuously was object to exactly. this. The the um, yeah, you know, somebody somebody. I remember Bush being criticized for not having vetoed enough bills. And I said, go look at the saps for appropriations bills. Every single one of those had a veto right. threat in it, and it worked to remove whatever uh, provision we were objecting to. Look, I think the overall appropriations process is broken. That, that's having a negative impact. But I think at the program level, um, you, you have those hiccups, but generally it, the process is working the same as it always has. And I think if you had deeper relationships between OMB and the Congress, that could make that even more constructive. And I, want, and I think it's, it's a two-way street, too. Um, and I'm not familiar with how the Hill thinks through and what rules they have. But when I went from OMB to the IRB... They don't. It's the Wild West up there. Okay, well, they got phones. They're, you can talk to them anywhere. As long as you're willing to eat finger food, they're available to you at any time. But, so let me, but let me contrast that with the agencies, maybe. When I, uh, this is one person's experience, but when I went from OMB to the IRS, I remember being sh- surprised because I, we had a question, and I was like, well, I know the person at OMB that could answer that question, call such and such. And they go, well, we, don't, we don't do that. We, we are, we, if we're going to communicate with OMB, we, we go through Treasury. And, um, and again, I'm not sure what's the right or wrong answer. I know you have to have certain protocols in place, but I generally favor a more fluid communication channel between OMB and all the various stakeholders that are involved in making the government work. Well, as, even as a consultant now to federal agencies, if I suggest to one that I might call over to a buddy at OMB to get some insight into a specific area, they go nuts. Right. They can't believe that I would know the person at OMB, much less have the gumption to call them and ask them about some totally arcane matter. There's a piece of me that thinks some of that, though, is, is learned helplessness, that the idea is, <laughs> is to try to keep it as complicated as possible, like, oh, no, we'd have to go to Treasury, and then Treasury would go to OMB as a way, frankly, to slow the march and slow the roll of whatever change agent, such as the interim uh, uh, commissioner of IRS, might cook up. So... Um, we could well, do real or perceived, the risk of some hammer coming down on you because you called the wrong person, I think, is is real. You 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 should ignore it. Um, people ought to have more spine, right. I think, and be willing to take the consequences of um, over collaboration. And I and I think that that's in general that's a bigger problem and and maybe one of the themes that comes out of this conversation. I think we have a structure that actually um, creates more sanction for doing something and and running the risk of getting it wrong than it creates for for not doing anything. Well, I think the Trump administration may turn that on its head because mm-hmm. I think they whatever you think of what they want to get done, they want to get stuff done and don't have a lot of patience for people telling them they can't. So we could do this all day. We, we, we regrettably can't because Billy Mitchell has six other jobs he has to go do. But, uh, but you've I, been fantastic. I, yeah, I, mean, I agree with you. See, oh yeah. so now Quiet you know. force in the room. I feel yeah, like yeah. a puppet. That's right. Generally, that's the most powerful person in the room, the one that says the least. And the one who can turn off the volume. Well, that helps, too. Um, but uh, I, I still, at the end, I want you, Robert, I want you to have the last word today. And, again, you're, the, you're kind of the, 
the senior advisor in the room for a new OMB director? What, how, how do you tell them to run their first, uh, their first 100 days here? What's your, what's your advice for them? Um, first 100 days. Uh, you know, I, I, I default to this. Make sure everybody's in the room at OMB who can help you get things done. You've got enormous resources. Make sure they're all working together. There aren't these false divisions among the different power centers at home bay. Great. All right, we've got to um, we've got to agree that this doesn't become OMB actually going forward. Oh no no, this was just Robert was available. No, I know absolutely um, no. I just think the last few guests and then our natural bent is to go in this direction. I think it's really important though to to kind of start at the beginning, and I think in terms of operating the government, in terms of the actual way the government operates. It starts with OMB at a fundamental level. Yeah, but we should get to the front lines of the agencies as well that are out there. I always felt when I was at OMB that I was in a bit of an ivory tower, and I certainly the bubble. I certainly felt that way when I got to the IRS. I felt like, wow, the world was somewhat flat when I was at OMB compared now that I see kind of different right. dimensions of what goes on in an agency that's executing a mission on the ground. So we should absolutely get into what actually happens on the ground as well. Thanks for listening to another episode of Gov Actually on the FedScoop Radio Network. If you want to reach out to us, you can tweet us at, at GovActually, or you can send an email to dan at govactually.com or danny at govactually.com. 